Welcome to the Blue Dot Podcast. Please join us as we discuss what's happening in Harrison County, Indiana. Hey, Harrison County. I'm Elmer Ramos. And I'm Graylin Porter. And you're listening to the Blue Dot Podcast. Hello, Harrison County, and welcome to episode 29. I feel like we just recorded this like last week and it's been yeah. two weeks already. Time we flies. took a break. And so now that we're back, it like every other week comes up really fast. I know, <laughs> especially when like you have a newborn at home. Oh, <laughs> I feel I, like I don't have enough time to do anything anymore, but it's all oh, good. I know. I'm, I'm still I getting know. stuff done. <laughs> I know. I know. It's fine. You know, we're here. But yeah, I'm excited about today's episode. We have some really good guests and I can't wait to talk to them. And uh, yeah, yeah, I'm 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 super excited. I am so excited to talk to Dan Cannon because I just have been a big fan of his for a long time. And I've wanted to have him on the podcast for a long time. And it's just perfect timing because he has a new book out. Um, it just came out a couple weeks ago, so yeah. it's so perfect. We'll, we'll discuss a little bit about that, which I, I you know, I, I just read a little bit, and I'm excited to dive deep on that because mm-hmm. it really brought back a lot of memories from my childhood and how like I think my that's life would have been completely different if I had a different, you know, upbringing. Yeah, but yeah, I'm excited. Um, and then all right, so everything, uh, other stuff on the podcast, we are going to talk a little bit about the skate park. So yes! it's happening, and we're really it's excited, happening. and we'll, you know. We'll talk a little bit about that. Um, and then we have other events, but we'll uh, we'll touch uh, on that. We're also going to talk to Jim Kerber. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about mm-hmm. gas Local prices. Local expert on gas prices. Yeah, He's going to so give us a little lesson. That's going to be awesome. <laughs> um, but yeah, let's go ahead and dive, okay, dive let's right do it. in. Let's do it. Love getting local updates from the Blue Dot? Consider making a donation by visiting bluedothc.com slash donate. Blue Dot is made up of volunteers and all our donations go towards reaching out into the community to bring you the information you deserve. Any contributions will make a significant impact in the community. Again, visit bluedothc.com slash donate to make your contributions. Thank you. All right. So uh, I'm excited. And this is just going to be brief. Um, the uh, skate park in Corden is happening and mm-hmm. um, they're going to have a public hearing over at the Corden Town Hall on April April 1st at 530. Mm-hmm. And the Hunger Skate Parks, which are the yes. group that's designing, um, they're going to be showing what the skate park's going to look like. And um, I'm just super excited. So I'm very excited. I just want to kind of share that with the uh, our, our listeners. And if you guys are excited about this, um, go and show your support. I think it's uh, something great for the, the age group. I've always said this, that there's stuff for little kids, there's playgrounds and there's stuff for adults, but this middle group of age group doesn't have a place to go. And this is going to be great for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm, I'm really surprised, you know, it seems like a long time since we had uh, had them on and talked about it, but it really isn't that long in the, you know, the world of bureaucracy and big yes. projects. And so I'm, I'm just so yeah. thrilled to see it moving forward. And so that's April 1st at 5 30 PM at the Corridon town hall. Yep. Sounds great. Yeah. And so now we want to talk a little bit about uh, something that's obviously been in the news quite a lot, uh, which is gas prices. Um, we have Jim Kerber on today. He's local resident and worked at Chevron for 41 years. Hi, Jim. Oh, How's it going? Glad to be here today. 
Yes, thank you for joining us. And, um, you know, I think this is one issue that, you know, everybody is so passionate about um, and also thinks they're an expert on. (laughs) And so we wanted to ask you, who you actually are an expert, um, you know, what determines the price of gas and why are gas prices so high right now? Well, I think the the first thing is uh, to discuss the price of gasoline, you got to talk about crude oil. And, you know, crude oil is a world commodity and it's traded typically all around the world and in four major categories, metals, energy, livestock and agriculture. Of course, crude oil falls under the energy aspect. And if you think about world consumption is 88.25 million barrels a day that and there's 42 Mm -hmm gallons in a barrel, that is a lot of crude oil being moved around the world. And the United States consumes about 20% of that, about 18, over 18 million barrels a day. And so if you think about that, and we, the United States exports crude oil, and they import crude oil, but it's more than just the crude oil itself. Sometimes it gets refined, they export refined products, gasolines, distillates, et cetera. And so, it, again, it's a world it's a world thing. It's not a United yeah. States mm-hmm. thing. <clears throat> and so, and, and if you think about our imports, uh, Canada is our largest importer. We, we get about 52% of our crude oil uh, imports from Canada. Really? I did not. I didn't know that. You never hear Canada when you're talking about oil. And and Mexico's next with 11 percent. Oh, wow. And then Mm -hmm. uh, Saudi Arabia and then Russia and Colombia. And then the rest of the world makes up the the difference. And that varies depending on what's going on in the world, you know. But Mm -hmm. uh, when we talk about that, we're talking about total petroleum again. And that's all the chemicals that go into this. That's the refined everything. It's the benzenes, the toluenes, all the things that make up what crude oil is. And so mm-hmm. it's more than, you know, just a, a one product. So, like I said, you know, it takes it's 42 gallons in a barrel. And in the, in the refining process, it, it equates usually a little bit more because there's some added items in the making of crude oil. So. Uh, typically, a good crude oil um, makes about 19.4 gallons of, of uh, gasoline from a barrel of crude oil. So if you think about that, you got 42, mm-hmm. 42 gallons, you, you get 19 out of that. The distillate, which is like diesel fuel, is about 12. And then you got jet fuel and you got all your other products, um, residuals. You know, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So, so then let's get down to the oil price. So what, what really determines that when it's a world? Yeah. <clears throat> well, what really determines it is supply and demand. It's pretty basic economics 101, <laughs> you know? It, yeah. And <clears throat> when you have economic growth, the price is going to go up. So that's one of the biggest factors of, of things. And so, and there's some other things that impact that, and that's OPEC, as as uh, that's the organization of petroleum exporting countries. They can have a significant influence on the oil prices because the OPEC members control about 71 percent of the total world proven oil reserves, and they account for 36 percent of the total world crude oil production. 
And so you look mm. at those numbers, they have a big, uh, and for us who maybe are a little older, you, or maybe you might not <laughs> remember the oil embargoes in the 70s, etc., and how that. Don't remember those. <laughs> well, that's what impacted the prices then. They had an embargo yeah. and the, the prices went sky high again, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. over and over. And, and kind of the last thing of that is the geopolitical events and severe weather. Right. You know, uh, hurricanes off the Gulf of Mexico, they shut down all the, the wells, et cetera, that kind of a thing. Or uh, more so is a war or disruptions mm-hmm. in, in uh, the supply. So if you think about that, let's let's talk a little more about that. The, the Putin effect, as mm-hmm. I call it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah. We'll start before we even get into that. We want to talk about the COVID effect because that started yeah. before this second wave. And just prior to the pandemic, the United States was producing at an all time high around 13 million barrels a day. And as the pandemic unfolded, the demand collapsed. Uh, production mm-hmm. followed, everything was going down. Uh, by May of uh, 2020, Oil production dropped by more than 3 million barrels a day. That's a lot wow. of reduction. And, and mm-hmm. what happened, um, that, that demand down, it put some of the oil companies just went out of business. And like so many other things mm-hmm. have gone out of business, they have not come back. And so that mm-hmm. supply is, is, has been down. Now with the rising prices, you know, comes when there's more of the demand after the pandemic is over, the demand goes up. And so does the prices because the supply is not there. Again, the supply and demand. Yeah. So if you if you look at if you look at that in the surge of the gasoline prices more recently, if you think back in the last three months of the Trump administration, oil prices rose 32 percent. Right. And then in the first three months of the Biden administration, they rose another 19 percent. And then three months later, they rose another 17 percent. Well, you can see what was going on. And mm-hmm. that's, it was already rising it, before. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and they you know, they a lot of people contribute that the entire price rises because of President Biden. And but the reality yeah. is it began way before he took office. And further, it was neither President Trump's or Biden's fault. I mean, prices surge were taking places all over the world at that time because with the pandemic, et cetera. So mm-hmm, you know, you, mm-hmm. as I always tell people, the, the um, well, before I get into that, the stimulus money didn't help either in, in this sense because it put more money out there. People were buying mm-hmm. They, when when we start coming back, then and they, of course mm-hmm. they put a, a, a push on the on the demand again. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but now let's talk about uh, something that President Biden did impact. And I often mention that a president has little impact on what he can do about prices, and that's really there's only three things that that go on. Releasing of oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, which they did, which had little impact. Mm-hmm. Changing the gasoline tax, the excise federal tax, which hasn't happened yeah. since October of 93. So 
Okay, and I've been seeing things about that possibly going to happen. Yeah, well, it, it yeah. hasn't happened. And if you think about mm-hmm. since October of 93, inflation's gone up about 77%, and this has yeah. increased at all. So, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then involvement in a war with a major oil provider. And ta-da, there you go. It, there's yeah. where we are. And all of those have a rapid impact on gasoline prices. The, any one of those can change the price of, of, immediately. So now let's mm-hmm. talk about with the war. So we have the Putin effect, as I call it. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. The Russians were beginning to mass the tru- troops into the Ukraine border in February or in January, and the prices started to go up. Uh, in February, when they did invade, well, then the prices really jumped because mm-hmm. there was going to be, you know, impact. Because, you know, the uh, this, this oil crude kind of works on a, like the stock market does when things are uncertain, that's <laughs> the, the futures yeah. go up, et cetera. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I can attribute the price rise to Putin combined with the world's response to the invasion, because not only yeah. did the United yeah. States impact on that, so was the rest of the world. And, um, and, but Biden does bear a responsibility for, Stopping to import crude oil right. then right. caused the price to go up. But, you know, I believe that banning it was the right move, you know, per, right. my own personal feeling. And I think you know, mm-hmm. 66% of Americans also agree. I saw a recent poll. Yeah. So I think. Yeah. And, and what I can't remember exactly what you said, but we don't get a large percentage of our oil from Russia, but enough to make a difference. Yeah, I think yeah. it's probably down to about 3% now. It was up in the mm-hmm. 6 to 7% range, but that's been going mm-hmm. down because you know, I worked in Russia for a number of years. And one of the things of all the uncertainty there, the risk is so high where you think you got the potential. And I think a lot of the major oil companies, like some of the, the Chevron's competitors, the Exxon, the Shells, the BPs, and ConocoPhillips, mm-hmm. they've been backing out of Russia because of so many problems there. So, yeah. Know, it's, um, it's, so, who do they provide oil with now? Well, Russia. Well, yeah. Who do they? Who's their big? Who do they give the most of their cons- oil? To? Well, China's one, but one of the big concerns mm-hmm. is Germany. Germany is kind of mm-hmm. tied into that, and so. When you cut off the oil, if Germany cuts off the oil, then somebody else has got to come in and supply that for Germany to keep their economy going. So that's where, mm-hmm. you know, we may be exporting some oils to Germany to help Germany, you know, if we're going to cut mm-hmm. off that. But, you know, the, the again, back to the OPEC countries and countries like Saudi Arabia, they're one of the few countries that can, can open a valve and produce more oil or many Mm-hmm. cannot you know uh it's not something they, yeah they, well and that's that's something i wanted to ask you about because i've seen in several different places people saying just turn on the keystone pipeline well, yeah you know and, and thinking thinking that could fix it which that's completely nonsensical and you might be able to explain why well, i think um, I, I think it's important <laughs> to understand that there's the keystone pipeline and then there's the keystone xl pipeline the Keystone right. Pipeline has been in existence uh, for, I think, around was in 2009, something like that. The Keystone XL Pipeline was a proposal to, to expand that pipeline on a direct, more direct route across the United States. And, and so 
that would take at least two years to build. So it's not like there's a, a spigot you turn <laughs> on, you know? Yeah. yeah. And, and um, you know, I, it, it has no, canceling the Keystone XL pipeline had no impact on gasoline prices today. You know, I mean, black. Yeah. Yeah. It has nothing to do mm-hmm. with it. I mean, it's something that was two years in the future. It, it could have an impact. But you got to remember, too, that the, the Keystone, or they, the, that is tar sands that's being coming from Canada. Tar sands are the worst, I would say, dirtiest crude oil that is produced. It's basically sand, water, and bitumen, which is like asphalt. It's very heavy. And you have to add something to it, even to to transport it. It's more corrosive. It's more abrasive. Mm-hmm. They've had they, the, the existing Keystone pipeline has 16 times more spills than a regular pipeline does because of those characteristics of that particular crude oil. And also, you got to think about how it's produced. There's two ways. They do strip mining type of a thing from the surface, just like you do coal strip mining, which then destroys the, you know, the, the environment, et cetera. Or you do the injection with steam and natural gas, et cetera. And both of those take a lot of energy and et cetera. If you think about crude oil, a gallon or barrel of crude oil, the ratio of the energy to what it produces is about one energy to it produces 25. That's a nice ratio mm-hmm. for, for your, if mm-hmm. you put that in dollars perspective too. Or yeah. tar sands and strip mining, it's one to five. Okay. Gotcha. For injection, where it's below the earth, it's less than three. So mm-hmm. you start thinking about the only time tar sands is beneficial is when prices are high, crude oil prices, and and et cetera. So adding the the X the uh, Keystone XL pipeline from Canada down to, uh, I think it goes into Steel City, Ste- no, Steel, Nebraska or somewhere. You know, mm-hmm. It's about a 1,200-mile about uh, distance. And then, then down to the Gulf. Uh, and not all refineries can handle this. That's another mm-hmm. yeah from people. And some of this would be exported, uh, sold to the, for- you know, the, the, the market. So it's, it doesn't mm-hmm. even stay in the United States to p- produce. You know, if, if we're building if we're building um, more asphalt roads, this is it's probably a good product. But if you want to make gasoline, it is not a good product. You know, because <laughs> the yield is so low in making gasoline. So, yeah, is there anything that you would want the listener to know more than anything else right now when they're navigating? The media and what how they talk about gas prices. Well, if you, if you get down to one one of the things people ask me is why is gasoline in Kentucky cheaper than it is in Indiana? Well, you know when they both states pay eighteen point four cents a gallon for the excise uh, federal excise tax, but in Indiana, well, we'll start with Kentucky. Kentucky's taxes and fees above that eighteen point four is twenty six cents a gallon. Okay, that's what mm-hmm. their, their fees are. Indiana 
is 49.7. That's 23.7 cents difference in in fees and and uh, taxes mm-hmm. that we pay in Indiana that they don't pay in Kentucky. So right there, and so, but interesting. It's it, in in the in the world of of gasoline service stations. You know, today there's most of them have uh, a food mart. And the reason they have a food mart is that's where they make their money. Gasoline mm-hmm. stations do not make a lot of money selling gasoline. Yeah. <laughs> in, in the older days, when, when I was in the, that side of the business and the engineering sector and building the thing, I think they used to make two cents a gallon. Wow. <laughs> that's not a lot of money. Wow. <laughs> no. <laughs> and so you have to pump a lot of gasoline. But they make more than that today, and, but rightfully so. The, the, the property they build on, the cost of building, et cetera, et cetera, is a whole lot more. And that's why you see fewer stations and, and bigger stations. But they all mm-hmm. have, you know, an additional, um, you know, business going, food marts, et cetera, to, to help them make money. I mean, mm-hmm. the money is in the crude oil side of the business. And as, as, as right. it goes up and down, the, the companies make money, et cetera, et cetera. So. Speaking of, do you have a prediction of what's going to happen? And well, the- I, I think based on history, um, the crude oil prices are already starting to drop. I think once things start to stabilize with uh, making up the differences of what Russia was exporting until such time. I mean, this is not going to be a short term thing. It's, it's going to take mm-hmm. a while, but I think we're already starting to see crude oil prices come down. Uh, I think they the demand is down because when prices go up, people drive less, so the demand will be down, so the supply will be there. So I think we've mm-hmm. already seen a, a significant uh, drop in demand uh, in the past week, and so mm-hmm. I, I can envision uh, the prices uh, stabilizing, so to speak. But when you have a war, there's still uncertainty. And when there's uncertainty, mm-hmm. um, you know, that that's what creates, creates these problems. So the yep. supply yep. Uh, the, the, is uh, disrupted and, the, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And then demand goes yep. up, et cetera. So. Well, well, thank you so much for coming on and, and giving us a little lesson because, you know, I know nothing. Um, and <laughs> but I t- typically don't say anything about it because I know nothing, but I feel like out there people are very quick to, you know, do this and, or, or this is what it is doing. Yeah. And I think it's important to, to try to educate ourselves on all the little yeah. things that do contribute yeah. to this. So thank you. Yeah. You're welcome. And, you know, gasoline mm-hmm. is, for an example, uh, re- gasoline in California cannot be, or I have better word, Gasoline in Arizona cannot be sold in California because they haven't reformulated mm-hmm. gasoline. So it's all different. You know, everybody thinks it's mm-hmm, all the same. Mm-hmm. Well, it's the same. Right. So the prices are more. And when, when a refinery puts in millions and millions of dollars to make the certain gasoline, well, they got to pass that on to the consumer. You know, it's a, mm-hmm. what business yeah. works. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Um, well, 
Elmer, do you have anything else? No, I mean, I don't want to start a whole other conversation, but it just makes me curious about the uh, like when gas prices go up, how many uh, ener- uh, electric vehicles are sold. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but that's a whole when, different conversation. When well, do people start to rethink their choices? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And how many SUVs are not sold? <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much. Jim. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah. My pleasure. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Bye. Okay, and just a couple other things that have been um, happening Uh, at the county council meeting on Monday, Pam Bennett Martin gave a presentation to the council asking for $20,000 for the upcoming return of the Harrison County Popcorn Festival, which is in, yeah, (laughs) which is in downtown Corydon. The the popcorn festival was something that happened when I was a kid, but I have zero memory of going. I know I did go a lot. Mm -hmm. But I have no. Rem- it sounds really fun. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, a popcorn festival. Sign me up. Like, I love popcorn. <laughs> yeah, I, um, I've seen some pictures of like I think there was a Ferris wheel downtown, or might, I might re- be confusing whoa. it with something else. But I think maybe. maybe I don't know. It might be something I, I else that I'm thinking about. I want to know what's wrong with me because, like, I remember going to a lot of other stuff as a kid, mm-hmm. but not the popcorn festival. And I know I went. So. <laughs> It's just like I've blocked it out in my memory. Um, but no, so she uh, she presented asking the council for 20,000. Um, and I believe this is, I don't want to say riverboat. I, I can't remember, but it was um, not riverboat funds. Oh, okay. I believe. Um, I can double check that. And if I'm wrong on that, we will put a note in the show notes, but, but there was a reason they weren't necessarily gung ho to do this. Um, Mm -hmm. And so they heard her presentation and kind of debated it back and forth and they'll decide in two weeks. So, or actually by the time this comes out, it'll be the next day they're going to decide. So this was her first ask. Um, It's going to be in July, the first week of July. Um, So she's going to go to other, you know, sponsorships from the popcorn companies and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I'm not quite sure. And this is kind of what Donnie has sung um, said to her. I'm not quite sure why the County was the first place to go for funding. Well, I mean, that doesn't make a ton of sense to me because, you know, there's a lot of different festivals in the County and I don't necessarily know that all of them go to the County council yeah. for funding. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like heritage well, weekend, you know, all these different things. Who's spearheading this project though. I don't know for sure. Maybe uh, her. Maybe. Okay. Um, yeah. I, I don't know if it, there's no organization behind it. OK, that's, that, that's what I was curious, because yeah, yeah, I mean, no. maybe that would be a factor in like going to the. I think Main first. Street obviously has a lot to do with it. Mm-hmm. Um, Parks is mm-hmm. going to have a large See, hand in that, it. That's my first guess. Like mm-hmm. if those groups are part of it, I think they normally go to the city first. Before yes. They yes. Go that, to and that makes sense. Yeah, that actually does make sense now that you say that. So. Yeah. Uh, another thing at the Lanesville town council meeting uh, last week or yeah, last week, um, they heard a presentation that actually pertains to the whole county. It's um, a new communication system that's going in countywide. It's a $2.2 million project. This will be a common communication system, radio system that is used by law enforcement, EMS, firefighters, and the highway department. So if you want to hear like a full 
detailed outline of that project. It's up on the site. And so there isn't something mm-hmm. in place right now. I think they, they have kind of separate. Yeah. Uh, separate communications. I don't know if they have a countywide interesting. system. Yeah. I, I would think that, that that was already something that existed where they all can communicate through one channel. But yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. So that that is interesting. And I sounds like it's probably expensive. <laughs> and I think it's been in the works for a while. Hmm. Um, so there's that. And then the last thing is that the Harrison Township Advisory Board met. So this is where we've talked about this before, but like in Indiana government, you have town councils, you have county councils, you have ha- townships, mm-hmm. which are a little bit of a larger area than a town, mm-hmm. and they have advisory boards. And so there's just way too many boards. We're the only state in the country that does it this way. Yeah, it still that does sounds it this like way. way too many hoops to, to jump through to get just, anything done. And it's like so counterproductive. If you're if you're someone who wants to make your community better or like, mm-hmm. you know, bring progress or anything like you have to you have to jump through the so many hoops to get. Well, it's just way too many cooks in the kitchen here. Like we've got like, we've got a million (laughs) boards just for this little area in Harrison County. Like, yeah, yeah. Just doesn't make a lot of sense, but the township advisory board for Harrison township, which is Corydon and surrounding areas, they met, um, they had to replace one of the advisory board members who passed away. Um, And so Sean Davis was appointed to replace him and uh, the late Frank Ordner, and they discussed upcoming board projects, including a bathroom. So there's going to be a public restroom at the farmer's market in downtown Mm -hmm. Corridon. So that's good. And then they're also doing a, um, a training facility, I believe for the sheriff's department. And I'm not quite sure where that's going to be, Mm. but there you go. Interesting. I think the the bathroom will definitely be a good. So th- we're talking about plumbing and everything. Plumbing. It's going to okay. be exactly the same as the bathroom that's at Rice Island. Okay, cool. That's what I've been told. I, I, I'm all for that. Okay. I'm all for it. Yeah, it's fantastic. You know, you're there. Yeah. Your kid has to go potty. <laughs> you don't have to run home. Fabulous. I can run home. Luckily, it's that's close true. enough. But <laughs> most people can't. So, yeah, I think it's good. And we have a recording of that meeting up on the site, too, if you want more details on those projects. Okay, today we are joined by Dan Cannon. Dan Cannon is a civil rights lawyer, teacher, writer, speaker, consultant, and activist. He's a professor of law at the University of Louisville is best known as the lead counsel for the Kentucky plaintiffs in the landmark Supreme Court case of Obergefell. I, I have trouble with that word. Everybody has trouble with that word. <laughs> Obergefell versus Hodges, uh, which, you know, obviously the ruling uh, secured the right to marry uh, for same-sex couples. So thank you so much for coming on. Thanks very much for having me. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, we uh, we're having you on um, because you you your book came out a week ago, two weeks Just, ago. Yeah, no, a little over a week ago now. Oh, OK, wow. fantastic. And it is called Pleading Out, How Plea Bargaining Creates a Permanent Criminal Class. And I absolutely loved this book. Oh, well, thank you so much. That is, uh, is, <laughs> that is very uh, uh, gratifying to hear. You know, when you, it's like we were talking about before we started recording. Yeah, it's, it's uh, when you sit down to write a nonfiction book about the criminal justice system, you know, it's, it's hard to avoid either making it an information dump 
or making it all doom and gloom. And so I really, mm-hmm. you know, wanted to try to avoid both of those, those pitfalls in, in this one. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you did. And I well, think I it, it, it kind of gets very personal. Like, I feel like you can put yourself in, in someone's shoe. Like it's very, like it has that narrative vibe where like you can become the, the person that we're talking about, or you know, well, mm-hmm. you could very easily become that person. Yeah, you know, um, <laughs> that is true. <laughs> like one out of every three adults in the country, not to start spouting statistics right off the bat, but I mean, one out of every three adults has a criminal or arrest record of some kind. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's 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 a lot. It and mm-hmm. it could affect any of us. We are we are now sitting on top of the biggest criminal class in the history of the world. So. Yeah. Yeah, I, I really loved that way of framing it. Um, I read Cast when it came out as Bill Wilkerson's book. And um, I thought this book is such a nice compliment to that book. Taking um, the, a look at kind of the same framing where it's a caste system, but applying that that framework to a very specific issue that I feel like the normal person doesn't give the time of day in their mind. Like not many people I know are just going around thinking about plea bargaining and how it affects our society at large, you or, or know, class period. You know, yeah. I mean, that's the mm-hmm. reason I think one of the reasons that that cast struck such a nerve with so many people is that we don't really talk about at least people of my generation don't really talk about class as being, you know, a thing in America. Mm-hmm. We like to think that we're sort of, Beyond that, that that was a thing for, you know, 19th century France or mm-hmm. early 20th century Russia or something like that. You know, and we like to think that, that that's not a thing in the United States where we have these, you know, strata of different classes that operate by different rules. But just about everybody knows, mm-hmm. you know, if you've looked at the criminal justice system in America at all, you know that that, you know, there's two criminal justice systems at least. Right. Yeah. That chapter was particularly infuriating when you were talking about, you know, all of these really. Uh, famous people that have basically done no time. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Um, it's just, it's, it's unbelievable. And it's, it's also quite depressing how a, much of a given it is in, in our society. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we've decided, I mean, you can really see a very sharp class divide um, at work that I think, you know, part of what I'm arguing in the book is that, that, that is really very old. Um, mm-hmm. But we like to think it doesn't exist anymore. You know, because we have um, a system that is supposedly egalitarian. Uh, But in fact, what we have is a system that's very good at disguising its classism. Uh, You know, but again, Mm -hmm. you scratch just below the surface and you can see how it operates very differently for different classes of people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It seems like a human nature is to like find a way to separate ourselves if there's something we don't like about a culture or anything else. And so we kind of try to label Label things. I mean, I think that's human nature. Everything has to have a label and you have to be able to feel good about yourself because you're either that or you're not. Well, sure. And I mean, that is the whole point of this creation of a gigantic criminal class, you know, because everybody understands we have this sort of ancient understanding of what the criminal label is. Hmm. Right. You know, and Hmm. and even as the criminal law in America expanded to include pretty much everything you can think of. Um, yeah. you know, like covering all kinds of conduct that you'd never even know was criminal. Like we've sort of taken all the, you know, the social mores and cultural norms out of the law um, over the years. And, and now it can apply to anybody at any time. Anybody can be a criminal. But we still have the stigma that's associated with the criminal class. Mm-hmm. And part of the argument in the book is that that's what keeps 
people divide it up. You know, it's like you've yeah. got a third of the population, a full one third of all adults that are that are that are part of the criminal class in some way, shape or form. And that prevents um, a broad base of working class solidarity, which was the aim of the criminal law, you know, openly in the 19th century and then sort of became this, this mm-hmm. secret thing that we don't like to think still exists. Right, right. Mm-hmm. And, and, and to go back to the, you know, the actual issue. So plea bargaining, you know, you're you posit, correct me if I'm wrong, that plea bargaining is kind of the, the tool that creates it. Right. It is. Yeah. yeah. If you look at, you know, the, the we've we, we incarcerate um, more people than in any place in the history of the world, any country in the history mm-hmm. of the world. Uh, we, we lock up more people for more things more often. And, mm-hmm. you know, we couldn't have done that without a mechanism to do it. Mm-hmm. You simply can't, you know, go and, and criminalize everything and say, all right, a third of the population is a criminal without a process to be able to do that. And jury trials um, just take too long. Yeah. <laughs> and involve the community, you know, involve yeah. the community too much. And and if you can take the community completely, what's what's happened over time is that the community has been completely removed from the process of criminal justice and expedience has become the number one guiding principle of the entire system. And it's been that way for over a hundred years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I remember I was called to jury duty maybe five or six years ago. And um you know, I was in the position where I could take a day off of work and I could sit there all day and um, I didn't get uh, chosen. Uh, but, you know, if I had, I would have had to take not one day off of work, but two weeks off of work. And that's, you know, very, uh, that's not possible for a lot of people. And so, you know, the the amount of moving parts you have with a trial are you know, astronomical compared to a plea bargain. Yeah. You know, and it's funny that as an attorney, I've been in practice for 15 years and then I wish I could tell you the number of times that people have called me to ask how they get out of jury duty. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, that's the thing. Like we almost think of it, um, especially in the working classes. I mean, we almost think of it as just like, you know, it's a pain, it's a drag, you know, it's, it's a thing that is to be avoided at all costs. You know, and 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 really what it is, is the most power you will ever have as, as a citizen is when you sit on a jury, like most mm-hmm. more likely than not. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. You know, and and we've convinced people that it is a bad thing, that it is annoying to yeah. wield that power. And a lot of it is because of, you know, just financial concerns. Um, if you have you know, if you have somebody who is a, a wage and hour worker and they have to take two weeks off from work. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of them can't do that. And judges are pretty, um, pretty, for the most part, are pretty much going to let you out of it. If you just say, well, this is going to be too much of a hardship. And I've got a doctor's appointment on this day. And mm-hmm. I got to go home and water the hamsters. And I just don't, you know, I don't feel <laughs> like doing this. And, and they're going to let you out. And so it's very easy to avoid jury service. And so what happens is you end up with juries that are pretty much composed only of upper middle class white mm-hmm. people. Right. You know, yep. I have nothing against upper middle class white people. I happen to see. <laughs> but yeah. you know, it's 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 when that doesn't look a whole lot like a jury of one's peers when you look right. at yeah. you know what criminal defendants look like across the board. Well and and I remember in, in near the end of the book you, you um you gave some statistics on on the percentage of people that actually do serve on juries per year and just what a small percentage of the population it is. It can't in any way be representative of 
the country at large. Impossible. Impossible. Yeah. <laughs> and here's the thing. We've never tried it. You know, mm-hmm. there's a study out of out of um, Texas, I think it is, that looks at metropolitan areas and so, you know, like people that are called to jury service of those people, only about 20 percent show up. And so from that 20 percent, you're picking the people that end up on jury. So it's mm-hmm. like, you know, it, it, it ends up being the same kind of people over and over yeah. again. And you know, what we have is a situation in which if you look at it historically, you look like the long arc of the jury trial throughout history. It, it, you, you've got um, courts removing power from juries at about the same time that universal white male suffrage rolled around. So, you know, the early 19th century, all of a sudden, you know, unlanded working class white men can sit on juries. And that's the same point in time that that juries started to really disappear by the end of the 19th century you know, 90%, almost 90% of all cases, criminal cases in Massachusetts were resolved by guilty mm-hmm. plea, no more trials. And, you know, it, it, women couldn't even serve on juries in Massachusetts until 1950. <laughs> right. So, I, I, I read that and I was like, huh? Right, right. And so, you know, it's a jury of someone's peers, like true citizen juries is a thing that we've never even tried mm-hmm. um, in the United yeah. States for any prolonged period of time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and I may, maybe you've said this already, but 97% of cases are utilize a plea bargain yeah. now. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We're sitting at 97% and rising somehow. It's the, the number still keeps going up. Um, and so we have fewer and fewer jury trials all the time. And, and nobody else in the rest of the world, by the way, does this. Mm-hmm. So you look at the criminal justice outcomes in the United States. And part of what I well, was trying to get to the bottom of in this book is you look at the criminal justice outcomes in the United States and you say, well, this is worse than just about any place else in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and also there is no place else in the world that does plea bargaining as much as we do. And so, it, I mean, I think it's foolish to you know, draw a, a direct line between those two things, but I, I certainly think that there's a relationship there. Um, everybody else in the world tops out at most at 80% you know, um, guilty pleas to resolve their criminal cases. And here it's 97% and rising. And that, that additional 17%, as it turns out, makes a big difference. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, and what bothers me about like the plea deal is that you, you essentially are forcing them to agree, you know, like there's like, it's okay because they said it's, you know, they, they plead guilty or whatever. So that you're kind of almost forcing the person to agree with the crime or something just to get out of it. And then as a community, we see them as like, well, it's okay. They agreed to it. It's like, no, yeah. it's, it's kind of like it. they were forced they, into they, they it. Did it. It's, you know, and therein lies the true genius of plea bargaining. You know that you can, I mean, this is normal for lawyers, like the Alfred plea or a Nolo Contendere. You know, you can plead guilty and take your lumps for something, even as you stand up and tell the court that you didn't do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. factually not guilty, but there's enough there to, con- to convict me. So I'm just going to take my lumps and take the conviction. Yeah. That's insane. And yeah. Yeah. but it's a thing that, that, you know, we, we, we take for granted mm-hmm. and um, you know, having that criminal label attached to you is a big deal, you know? Yeah. And, and mm-hmm. if you look at some of the, the, I think it's in chapter four, where I've got some of the psychological studies yeah. about yeah. what being labeled a criminal does not in terms, not just in terms of the way the rest of society looks at you, but the way that you look at yourself. So and I get like, a criminal and all of a sudden I am less likely to participate in civic activities. Mm-hmm. I am more likely to withdraw and to engage in antisocial and what we would call criminal behaviors. So it is this sort of self-reinforcing thing. 
And 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 the person that took on the criminal mantle, uh, apparently voluntarily by taking a plea bargain, you know, they think exactly what you said. I agree mm-hmm. to this. You know, this yeah. is mm-hmm. and everybody else sees that. But the person themselves says, oh, well, you know, look, I made this deal with the state. And, uh, you know, I guess I, yeah, this I, is who I, I am now. Uh, yeah, this is yeah. who I am. Exactly. And it's, it's so easy to get into that. You know, it's so mm-hmm. easy to fall like I have a, a like a perfect example. I had a friend who was walking around the grocery store. They opened their Coke bottle and they were drinking of it from it and they were going to pay for it as you know, they were still shopping. And because the way they looked, they uh, got arrested because they were essentially stealing, opening, a, you know, a drink in the <laughs> store or whatever. They had their mug shot taken. It was also that's another thing. It like publicly humiliating people for being arrested and all that in the mm-hmm. newspapers and stuff with I think mm-hmm. should be illegal. Um, and uh, so this all happened to her. And like, she's just like, this was like a normal person who just opened a, a drink and was mm-hmm. going to pay for it, but then got caught in this whole system. And so that, that affects her job opportunities that affected like, you know, her school. So it's just like so easy to just like one second, one, one little decision you make. And now mm-hmm. you're confronted with like, this is how the world's going to see you from now on. Well, not only is it easy, but it's, it's, it's expected that when you are arrested and when you are prosecuted for something that you are going to plead to something, mm-hmm. we, we're at a point where it is expected that you're, I mean, it's going to end in a conviction of some kind, whether it's what mm-hmm. you got arrested for to begin with or something else. And that cultural expectation is, is very dangerous. I mean, I, that's what I argue in the book anyway. I think it's, mm-hmm. it's led to a lot of, um, bad things, but it's just what we take, you know, for granted as being, that is the way the criminal justice system works. I had a reporter tell me um, in an interview a couple of weeks ago that, um, you know, she, she used to be an attorney and she had a, uh, she used to be a legal aid attorney. She had a client who got mugged and you know, the, the muggers are looking at his prescription medicine. He's got a prescription a bottle of prescription pills and they dump out the pills because they realize that, you know, they're not dope. So they dump the pills out on the ground and this guy is like picking himself up and dusting himself off after the muggers run off. He's picking up the pills and putting them back in the container and gets arrested for having prescription drugs, not in an approved container because that's a crime. Yeah. (laughs) For no reason. And what what the defense attorney says is, well, you know, just take a plea to this. Well, and then well, you lose your Section 8 housing and then you lose, you know, everything like for poor people. It's I mean, the, the consequences are enormous. You might never be able to find another place to live again. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. It's unbelievable. And the, the really interesting to me was, you know, that section on, on how this affects the work police officers do. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if, if you're a police officer and you know that 97 um, percent of people are going to plead guilty, then then it's actually the at the arrest is when the, 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 the criminal is made, you know, you know, and what kind of criminal they are is made with that police officer during that arrest. And I thought that was a really interesting way of thinking about it. That's it. Obviously. Yeah. 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 So, so if, you know, there's more, there's between 10 and 11 million arrests made in the United States every year and police are pretty substantially certain that they're not that, you know, if they make an arrest, it's going to end in a conviction or at the very least 
that they're not going to have to put their money where their mouth is. Right. right? That there's never going to be any accountability. It's not going to trial, right? Because only 3% of the time is it ever going to trial. It's not going to trial. So they're not going to have to put up any meaningful evidence. They're not going to have to cross their T's and dot their I's. Their behavior is never going to be under a microscope ever. So if I'm a cop and I've been given that much discretion and I know that like, you know, almost every, every, every arrest that I make is going to end up in some kind of conviction. I don't care. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, like, right. I don't care about anything like, you know, except mm-hmm. I can only care about my own personal agenda. So if I'm a I'm a racist and I think that, you know, black people are a scourge on my community, I can just mm-hmm. go arrest them all. Mm-hmm. And who's ever going to hold me accountable for that? Yeah. And in fact, there are stories like that in the book where that <laughs> has actually happened. Down mm-hmm. in Julia, Texas, there was a guy raging racist who arrested, you know, more than 10 percent of the, the black population in his town. And they're all taking guilty pleas, even though there was a, a complete frame up yeah. because, you know, they see what happens, what the stakes are and what could happen if they don't plead. So, mm-hmm. I mean, police officers are just given enormous discretion. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, where you see places where the, the number of jury trials increase. Um, and I talk in, in the book about Alaska and New mm-hmm. Orleans and El Paso. You also see um law enforcement um, adjust to that and become more careful. And, you know, they get at loggerheads with the prosecution for a little while, but then they've got to start being more careful in their investigations and what they bring to the prosecutors in the first place. Right. And so, yeah, you do give a couple examples of of like Alaska where they did a total ban on plea bargaining for a while. Right. Um, And it didn't necessarily, uh, you know, it seems like that the system and everyone who works in the system has an, the 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 thought that if you do away with plea bargaining, the whole thing will collapse. Um, but that's not necessarily what happened there. You really did read the book. Yeah. yeah. No, that is that is that's very impressive. It hasn't been out for long. But you guys, I don't know when you guys are going to hear this podcast. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, it comes out a week very from today. Quick, yeah, comes very out a week quickly read. Yeah. No, um, if yeah, in Alaska, the situation was you have an attorney general was sort of a unique situation where you have an attorney general that's in in control of the sort of day to day goings on um, in the trial courts, all the trial courts in the state. And so he says, well, you know, if you're going to do plea bargains, it has to come through me. I have to approve them all. And we're just going to basically do very few of those. And so what happens is the number of rejected cases, and I think it was either in Fairbanks or Juneau, I don't remember off the top of my head. Uh, but in, in one of the uh, the cities in Alaska, you have the the um, rejected case rate. So the, the prosecutors are mm-hmm. looking at the cases and saying, yeah, we're going to screen this one out. We're not going to do this. We're not going to prosecute this case. This is a loser. That goes from four percent rejection to 44 percent, you know, virtually overnight. So they're rejecting a lot more cases. Um, and the they, and same thing in New Orleans, they develop this elaborate screening procedure that gets rid of lots and lots of cases up front, you know, so you don't have all this as, as opposed to now where everything is kind of just getting rammed through and we're going to get a conviction for whatever, whenever, because we know, you know, it's not really going to go to trial and, and we're being guided by expedience. Um, and it is a common trope for lawyers. I was taught this from day one. That if you if you reduce the number of plea bargains, even by 10 percent, you know, um, and you make all these cases go to trial, then that's just going to cause a crash of the whole system. But that I mean, historically, 
We know that's not true in the United States. And if you look at the other countries where, you know, nobody does as much plea bargaining as we do, it's not true there either. Right. Right. Yeah. And I thought that was a, you know, this book, I think, kind of fits in with some other books I've read where it's there's a system that we have in the U.S. that just isn't functioning the way it should, um, you know, be it uh, the healthcare system or education. Um, well, and, it is and, functioning for the ones that are in charge. <laughs> it's, yeah, they <laughs> Not don't for have the rest of the people. <laughs> yes. And, 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 and each one of these systems, I feel like has this, uh, this kind of same commonality of that, you know, it's, kind of everyone that works in all of the different levels is kind of trying to get through the day. Like we're just trying to get through the day. Like, um, and, and no one's actually thinking about the cumulative effects of all their actions. Um, and so I, I just think this, this book fits in perfectly because it, you know, there's a lot of books written about the healthcare system and a lot of, you know, in education, but this one is such a specific issue that I hadn't thought about before. And, um, but well, it fits right in. You? Yeah. Why, why would you? you know, yeah, for, exactly. Two thirds of us are completely and totally excluded from the process of criminal mm-hmm. justice. Right. And if you're not a lawyer, you know, if you are a lawyer, you know, and you're working within the criminal justice system, I mean, comparatively few lawyers do when you look at the broad swath of lawyers mm-hmm. in the United States, you know, um, if you're working with that every day, it just looks normal to you, you know. It's mm-hmm. perfectly normal to have 97% of cases, um, you know, subjected to a plea bargain, resolving a plea bargain. It's perfectly normal to lock up all these people. It's perfectly normal to, you know, do the things that we've done now for generations. Um, and there really hasn't been a public conversation about plea bargaining and whether or not it's good for almost 50 years. You know, and that's kind of what I, I wanted to reignite with the book, if possible, is just to get people talking about it other than just like the people at the highest levels of academia, because, mm-hmm. you know, law professors, I think, have talked about how bad it is for a long time, but no one's really listening, you know, and, and lawyers have been taught that this is the way it is for two generations now. And so they're just they're just going to work and doing what mm-hmm. they know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't directly affect them. I mean, they are kind of the 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 ones ahead uh, on top, not the ones at the bottom. So, I mean, if you're the one at the bottom, you're always being stepped on and you are always going to stay at the bottom. It would take somebody from the bottom or somebody sticking up for those at the bottom to really make something happen. Yeah. Well, and it's even worse. I mean, because because you have this total extraction of the public from the machinations of the criminal justice system. You know, none of us know or really care until we get caught up in it. Mm-hmm. Like we don't see it. You know, we don't sit on juries, so you don't really mm-hmm. see, you yeah. know, what's going on. So nobody's really too mad about anything that happens. Um, plea bargains happen in secret, and that's the you know the the sort of bread and butter of the criminal justice system. And so we don't care. And that that effect reaches all the way up into state legislatures. And I, I interviewed a couple of state legislators for this book. And one of them, you know, is a state senator that that says, yeah, we don't really read these cr- the, 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 the crime bills that come through. And, you know, like, could you say what's what's passed, what criminal laws have passed in Indiana or in Kentucky in the last year or two years? I can barely tell you. I mean, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. You know, but there's new criminal laws that pass every single session because 
you know, everybody votes for it, Democrats and Republicans, because it's like, why not? Nobody's really paying attention to this. And, you know, in the rare case that somebody speaks up and says, well, you know, uh, let's uh, let's rethink this then it's still almost always going to be more popular to, or, or a safer bet, I should say, mm-hmm. to, to go ahead and vote for the new criminal law rather than to vote against it. And so that's what legislators do. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think it, that in the world that we live in today with like, you know, social media and everyone has a camera and everyone can like, you know, just show what's really happening in some way. Is there a way of a fixing, changing or growing out of this like, this kind of mindset? Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't, this is a complicated enough thing. It's, it's, you know, watching a police officer shoot somebody in the back as they're running away is fairly uncomplicated. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, you think, um, and, and, and jurors, <laughs> I mean, the, the system itself is still, you know, at, at times, oftentimes willing to give that cop a pass, because and I think it's because we've been doing this for so long, you know, um, the way that the criminal justice system works, the way that, you know, all these pieces fit together that result in all these, you know, umpteen bajillions of convictions that we have now is so much more opaque and so much more complicated that it's like, how do you take a camera into that situation and make it make sense to somebody? You can't. You know, I don't think I, if, if you can, I don't know how um, I do think that, you know, like the more that we can do to educate the public about what's really going on behind the scenes at courthouses, the better mm-hmm. and social media and technology and all that stuff certainly does affect that. But I think there's no substitute for for putting people in a jury box. You know, I think there is no substitute for that. And we've you know, again, we've never really tried it. But I talk a little bit in the book about the idea of the uh, participation theory of democracy, mm-hmm. where, you know, the idea is that if you participate in a civic activity that requires you to deliberate just a little bit, like voting, then you're going to translate that into a, you know, like a little bit of a sense of civic pride and a little bit of, you know, caring about democracy. If you participate in a, in a civic duty that requires a lot of deliberation, well, that then translates itself into a lot of participation in democracy and a lot of caring about what goes on in your community. Well, the biggest thing that you can do to participate, the way you're, again, the way that you're the most powerful as a citizen is by sitting on a jury, by deliberating over somebody's fate in a jury. Well, there is no more deliberative process in American society that I know of than that. Mm-hmm. And, and we've taken that completely away from people. And has it affected yeah. our democracy? I don't know. I mean, you know, you guys know better than I do being involved <laughs> in the slog of electoral politics. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and, and as far as solutions go, you, you know, like, like, from the bottom up grassroots organizing of people trying to convince just more people to demand a trial is kind of what you posit. Yes. Well, yeah. in, in moving public, you know, the public conception um, away from the idea that plea bargaining is normal, right. Mm-hmm. That all these convictions are normal and that every case ends in a conviction, every case ends in a plea, like, just moving that away from, because I don't think that like, if, you know, for most of us, you get sucked into the, the universe of criminal law. Um, you, you know, especially if you're on the receiving end and you're there unwillingly, you're going to do what your defense attorney tells you. 
And, you know, if you are not armed with any kind of tool that says, well, wait a minute, you know, I read someplace that plea bargaining is bad, which you <laughs> wouldn't have, I mean, you wouldn't have done uh-huh. probably for the last right. 40 years, you know, um, unless you're reading law journals for some reason on the weekend or you're spending, <laughs> you know, I mean, like there's, there's, there's nothing that would tell you that, mm-hmm. well, maybe I should think twice about this, or maybe I think yeah. I should avoid it. And so what I've tried to do at the end of the book is to is to talk to um, criminal justice organizers, uh, some of them, you know, formerly incarcerated people that have been working to change public opinion about, you know, whatever aspect of the criminal justice system and then saying, all right, can we take the blueprint for where these folks have been successful and use it for something like plea bargaining to say, you know, listen, it's in our interest, it's in everybody's interest that we have more trials and get more public participation in the criminal justice system. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and getting back to, you know, elections and things, um, your campaign when you ran for Congress in 2018 was the first time I ever volunteered for anything political in my life. Um, so I think, I do think that you're somewhat responsible for, uh, for now I'm sitting here as the chair of the Dems. And so I wanted no, to that, thank that you. That is that. very gratifying. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> that, 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 um, that means a lot. really. Does. And do you have any thoughts about the, the local scene from when you ran in 2018 to now? Do you, are you more engaged, hopeful, less hopeful? What do you think? No, I'm less hopeful. And I mean, yeah. I'm not going to say anything, you know, like mm-hmm. here. Um, I, you know, there's a reason that I focused on, on bottom up solutions in the book, um, because after having, you know, run for your Congress and being involved in electoral politics and, you know, sort of seeing how the proverbial sausage is made, mm-hmm. um, you know, I don't want to say that I became very cynical about the whole process, but I mean, that's essentially what happened. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, you know. That is not to say that that people should not be organizing on the ground like you are doing. That is, in mm-hmm. fact, exactly what people should be doing is like finding more like minded people and building coalitions and building mm-hmm. you know, these broader base. But the idea that we're going to go and, you know, change things in Congress or the, yeah. or God forbid at the state legislature you know, is just, I think, fantasy land right now. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, that's that's something I try to get across over and over again to people around here locally in Harrison County is that this problem is so big that that just sitting around and wringing our hands and trying to figure out what we're doing wrong is such a waste of time. It, it's not that's not what this is about. This is about you know, connecting with people, creating community so that we can make this a more, um, you know, enjoyable experience, honestly, to live here. Yeah. Um, and, and, and then from that, you can create change. Um, but, but, you know, pretending that, that what, what's happening is not happening and just running elections as normal and thinking we can win is absolutely ridiculous. No, there's no way. And mm-hmm. I mean, I think looking at the results in 2018 and then again in 2020, like if you can't you know, pull more than 30 or 40 percent of the vote in Trump's midterm year. You know, what are you going to yeah. do? I mean, like, mm-hmm. it's how 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 does it get worse? Like, at what yeah. point do does, you know, the, the community around you start to sort of wake up on their own as a result of what they see on TV or what is coming directly from the mouths of politicians? Yep. They won't. I think they mm-hmm. won't, you know. And mm-hmm. so you're 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 either, you know, trying to do. I mean, I think you're left with either, you know, waiting 
and seeing what happens yeah. <laughs> or trying to, you know, build um, coalitions on the ground, you know, and, and build people power on the ground. Yeah. Um, but the idea that you're going to, you know, you're going to somehow win an election just because that's the direction the political winds are. are, are or just because you are. Just because you are, it makes you sense. Ran, yeah. Or yeah. you run a good campaign. Like yeah. th- that's not a thing right now. It's not a thing. It's not mm-hmm. a thing. Mm-hmm. Like most people can't tell you who their congressperson is. This mm-hmm. is, you know, and it goes back to the idea of the participation theory of democracy and just like, you know, how engaged we are as a citizenry. And I mean, we're pretty much pulling a, a, a D minus right now on our, yeah. on our citizenship report card. You know, I talk in the book about like, you know, two out of every, I think it's like, like um, three out of every five or two out of every five, I can't remember. People can't name all three branches of government. One right. out of every five people can't name even one branch of government. And about 10% of all adults think that the constitution starts with the words, I pledge allegiance. You know, <laughs> that's a bad sort of situation. I tell a story. It's not about great. Yeah, it's I, mean, not great. I, I tell a story about when I was, you know, door knocking and got off the beaten path a little bit and got off the van list. And I was oh, like, oh, I'll just knock this door and see what happens in central Indiana. And, and, you know, a woman comes to the door and she's like, oh, uh, in her thirties, you know, not like an old lady or anything like that. So she's, she's, she's talking about, I'm, I'm talking to her about the election. It's like, is it, you know, there's an election coming up. Do you vote? I was like, yeah, I think we vote. Uh, <laughs> like, okay, well, do you guys usually vote Democrat or Republican? Because it matters. You're going to have to go and pick a ballot. And I'd like you to pick the Democrat ballot. And, and she's like, um, uh, uh, and peeks her head in the door. Yeah. Honey, um, are we Demo- Democrats or Republicrats? You know, like, I mean, like no awareness whatsoever, oh you know, of yeah. what's going on. And like, so yeah. try to try to nail people down and tell them who their congressperson is. Nobody even yeah. knows that. And yeah. I think it's so hard to like get that across because there's some kind of disconnect that's happening with with political parties, or at least on the Democrat side, because I'm not going to Republican meetings on the regular. But, you know, they don't seem to understand that. That, that most people are not thinking about this 99.9% of the time. Like yeah, no. they're not. And, and I don't understand why people who run the party can't get that in their head. Well, and as a candidate, I'll tell you that you really get stuck on like the 100 or 200 people yeah. that regularly show up in, I mean, for me, mm-hmm. it was, you know, a nine County race or whatever, 13 County race. Um, I mean, the people that show up at those meetings, the super engaged citizens, and you get really caught up in what those folks think. Mm-hmm. It's a 700,000, you know, constituent yeah. district. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I mean, ultimately, it doesn't make a whole lot of difference. What those, I mean, you can sway those 100 to 200 pe- people, but it's not going to make big change Mm-mm. on the ground. Like you're not going to somehow find an additional 10 or 20,000 voters um, which is what you'd need to swing an election. Yeah. When you have somebody like we in 2018, we had had a candidate try to spend $2 million on the race and get plowed. Yeah. And in 2020, we had somebody very well known in Monroe County that had been in po- involved in politics for forever, mm-hmm. um, ran a decent campaign and still got plowed. Yeah. It and doesn't matter like, what so you do. What do you do? You know? Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, I think the answer is not with electoral politics. I mean, I think yeah. it really is not 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 trying to win federal seats. And then what mm-hmm. are you left with winning state seats? You yeah, know, I, th- I think the city council seats are far more important. Yeah, true. Than, than the yeah. state legislation seats because you know you went. I mean, I, I have people approach me about this this Floyd County Senate seat every now and then. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't want to do like. So what's the best case scenario here? I win. Yeah. You know, so what? I can go out there and bang my head against a post at the at the, <laughs> yeah. you know, at the yeah. at a, with a super majority of fascists. Like, yeah. you know, I, I, why yeah. would I do that to myself? I don't want to shorten my life any more than my yeah. my, my first I know. campaign already shortened it. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. I think that goes to show how important like local media and local information sharing is. I mean, I, I, the mission of our podcast is just to like inform the community, you know, and I think like what other source around here you, you have that's like trying to just inform, even if, I mean, I don't, I don't really like to think of it as like just a political podcast. I think it's just building relationships with the community. I think we, we need to have that in order to understand that we, you know, what's best for us as a community, not what's best for me as an individual. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Mm -hmm. Well, we thank you so much for coming on. Well, thanks for having me. This This was fun. Yeah. Yeah, And I, I, you convinced me. I, uh, jury duty, (laughs) uh, it's very important. (laughs) Yeah. Have you ever been on jury duty? No, I, you know, I got selected right before I moved here. I got selected, I think to do one in Savannah, but I was like moving like the week after, but, uh, now I'm excited. I need, I (laughs) I want to be part of a jury. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, we'll definitely link up in the show notes to where people can buy your book. Um, but you know, obviously it's on the Amazon and then it's a, your local indie bookstore. Very good. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Yeah, this was awesome. Thanks very much for having me. All righty. See you later. Bye. Later. Bye. Um, I don't really have a lot of recommendations, Graylin, but uh, yeah, I will I say either. that the um, that book I mentioned on my last recommendation, it is. You were right. It is a, 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 series. a series. And so well, when you were describing it, I was kind of thinking, like, how is this not a series? Give me a break. Yeah. <laughs> So and then I have uh, like our number one listener from Savannah, my friend Aaron, um, mm. he, he texted me after listening and he's like, every time I listen to the podcast, I want to recommend like a new book to you. And so sure. he, he told me about um, Red Rising series. And so after I'm done oh, with this, have you read I've- that? No, but I've heard a lot of really good things about it. Okay. So after I'm done with this series, I'm going to jump on that. So thanks, Aaron. I I love it when you give me book recommendations. (laughs) Very, very cool. I don't really have much either. Um, I it's an odd recommendation, but what I did put down was um, Alanis Morissette's album, Jagged Little Pill. (laughs) What? I, I don't know anything about it, but I'm going to go check it out. (laughs) Um, Wait, wait a second. Wait, wait. Da- I know nothing. Alanis Morissette in 1995's album Jagged Little Pill. I have no idea. Isn't it ironic? It's like rain on your wedding day. What? Elmer. I'm, I'm confused. What is happening? <laughs> okay, let, let's back up. Um, in 1995, uh-huh. she's Canadian singer-songwriter Alanis Morissette. Uh-huh. Okay. She released an album and it's um, I think it's the second or it might be even the most, uh, you know, biggest selling album by a female recording artist of all time. Okay. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) This is so 
such a this is an incredible exchange. Okay. So uh, anyway. <laughs> I'm still lost. Okay. <laughs> so anyway, um, I listened to this album like so much when I was a kid and it's uh-huh. fantastic. And it, you know, Alanis Morissette. Anyway, there's a new documentary about this album and okay. when she came out with it on HBO and we okay. watched it last night, which prompted us to go back and listen to the album today. And I was just going to give another plug for like one of the biggest selling albums of all time. And you're going to go listen to it when this is over? Question mark? After, after, later. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, I'm so confused. Why? <laughs> I just, I'm shocked you've never heard it. You had I've, to have heard the ironic. I, maybe I have, and or like once it starts playing, I'm like, oh yeah, I've heard. You'll this. know. You, you'll you'll I, immediately you know, the be name like, name does not ring okay. a bell. Okay. Jagged little pill does not okay. ring a bell. Jagged little pill. So, but you know what? This is like pretty much my entire life. It's like someone asked me, oh, do you know this artist? And I'm like, I have no I idea. I know, who and that's that I, and you've they said play that the before. Song and I'm like, and, yeah, oh, well, I know. You've said that before, and now I feel bad. I, I'm getting I'm like, better duh, about names. You don't know about this. <laughs> and this is, you know what? I'm going to go. I'm going to keep talking. And this is going to go a little <laughs> long. But, but this is so interesting because we, Andrew and I had this discussion last night after we watched it, because this is like something he and I talk about all the time, because he grew up with no cable, um, you know, never watched a day of MTV in his life mm-hmm. um, and, and not big music family. Like they didn't listen to music a ton, like pop music. Mm-hmm. at the house whereas my family i was watching mtv like around the clock when i was like seven years old on like mm-hmm. ridiculous mm-hmm. right and obsessed with music and so i know the words to literally almost every song that that enters the house immediately know all the words and so he was saying that when he went he went to private catholic school until high school and then went into high school and immediately you know kids would be like what you haven't heard of this huh huh and he felt like just so terrible about that Mm -hmm, you know like mm -hmm. like what what's wrong with me but the thing is it's like that's not you weren't exposed to it it was no fault of your own and it's welcome to my high school experience yes like like (laughs) that is what we were talking about last night and so like this is like playing out again right now as i give my recommendation but well see and you should listen to it it's a phenomenal (laughs) album i will i will i uh see i i I think the combination of growing up and like here and there like i I, I was back and forth between puerto rico and going Mm -hmm. into the school system there and like the culture and everything like i just always felt like the outsider and i was never part of Mm -hmm. any like cool groups you know with friends who would like educate you on what's happening in the culture world or whatever and so i was just honestly when i lived in puerto rico i was just building uh tree houses and living in the yard and playing with dirt that's exactly (laughs) that's exactly what andrew said he said what did i do as a kid I was like, I was inside watching movies in MTV and drawing with <laughs> markers my entire childhood. And he's like, what was I doing? Wait a minute. I was outside yeah. running, running around outside, yeah. like in the fields or out in the woods, yeah. like doing who knows what. And yeah. that is so foreign to me. Like I have no concept of what <laughs> that would have been like. That's why as a kid. you haven't mowed your lawn. I've never mowed a lawn. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. Well, this has been a pretty amazing episode, and I don't yeah, even care that it I went a little long. I don't either. Jagged Little Pill, everybody. It's a great yep. album. You heard uh, it here first. 
right. Well, thanks, okay. everybody. And Thank uh, we'll catch you on the next episode. All right. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. This show is not possible without your support. If you would like more information on becoming a member, head over to blue.hc.com slash membership. Also, we want to hear from you. You can email us with your thoughts, ideas, concerns, and other feedback at blue.harrisoncounty at gmail.com. Find us on Instagram, Facebook at blue.harrisoncounty, or leave us a voicemail at 502-653-9157. As always, we want to thank our guests for joining us. And again, this project does not work without you, the listener. So thanks again. Bye.